Welcome to the Zach Clark Podcast. My name is Cody Walker. Uh, we have Julian Darius. Julian, say hello to everybody. Hi, everyone. And uh, we also have Kevin Thurman here as well. Kevin? Hello. Today we are going to talk about event comics because it's, it's something that I think we could make into an academic subject, and it's something that, that I don't know that is thought of in an academic manner very often. So let's go ahead and start with just sort of some preliminary just definition type things. So Julian or Kevin, whichever one wants to jump in first, uh, what do you guys think that, what, how would you like define an event comic? I think that event comics means two things. One, it means the super mega crossover. That's company-wide. Traditionally has a separate miniseries as the core of the title with the other books tying into that series, but not containing the main story, but rather augmenting it. And that's clearly both a company-wide crossover and an event. And those are typically hyped as huge events. And then I would say that there's a looser definition of event comics that would say that event comics isn't simply the mega crossover or even maybe more minor crossovers that may not even have a separate miniseries governing their main flow, but that event comics can also refer to a kind of storytelling that is governed by essentially making big headlines. So like the death of Captain America while a consequence of the Civil War crossover could be seen as an event comic in the same way that the death of Superman was an event comic. Those storylines were limited to their titles, more or less, although Superman overflowed into Green Lantern. But that kind of storytelling can also be called event comics, and those crossovers tend to be linked to the same type of thinking. So you have the death of Bucky and Fear itself, for example, or the demise of the DC Universe, essentially, in Flashpoint or Crisis. So you would argue that, that event comics go beyond just the summer event season or the summer idea of events and, and actually cross over into whenever the media ends up getting hold of you know a, a larger event like the death of Captain America or death of Superman and and the like. Right, although I would say that it doesn't necessarily matter whether the media gets a hold of the story. You could have an event comic that fails to take off in the press, or you could have a story that takes off in the press that wasn't conceived of as an event. I guess replacing Spider-Man with a part black, part Hispanic kid was intended to be a kind of event, but it strikes me that that's less of an event than, say, you know, when Wonder Woman was replaced where that was clearly designed to get some kind of attention, or Captain America's dying in the 90s, or Daredevil's getting a new costume. So I would say that that, that kind of comic storytelling is also event comic. Right. Um, the overwhelming, you know, commercial popularity of, like, the new DC-52, it, it also, you know, this weekend I was thinking about it, and it kind of struck me as, like, that whole thing itself is been a big, giant event comic, you know, the entire thing being rebooted because it's just so huge and monumental. But it also seems like they're setting it up as if everything that's happening after Flashpoint is, it seems like, leading up to whatever Morrison's going to do in Multiversity, which then makes all those comics in between kind of like tie-in comics. 
you know, if if this whole narrative really is going towards that, which is what Morrison's kind of hinted at before in interviews. If that's the fact, then that really changes kind of how event comics and crossovers and stuff like that are done because then that means purposefully everything's leading up to something else, which in itself could be a very cool thing if done well. But it's also one of those things that we wouldn't know, is this really going to pay off until, I think, what, next year when Morrison said he's going to do Multiversity? So it's it's interesting. That's kind of a huge gambit to do that really changes, I think, the landscape of, you know, what we call event comics or crossovers or or maybe even story. Although it does seem a little a little rare to have this much buildup for something like that. Something we need to realize, too, though, is that, like, Bendis' new Avengers... That was all allegedly. It was all designed to to lead up to, to to Secret Invasion, which they said was supposed to lead into Siege as well. And so, the thing that I I sort of find interesting about some event comics or or events is their interconnectedness with one another. Marvel typically does that in my mind a little bit more than DC does, because New Avengers led up to Civil War, which led up to you know, Secret Invasion, which also, I guess, Planet Hulk was in there, too. And it's just like event after event after event after event. And so I suppose that there's there's sort of a, a double-edged sword there because in, in the one sense, it allows for the universe to continue on and for storylines to matter because they build off of one another. But I suppose the other problem to that is is that there's no sense of finality. There's no sense of, of this is where the story ends. Any thoughts on that or any any other disadvantages that we can see to, like, the event comic? The event comic obviously is designed to promote sales. I think the problem that you're talking about, Cody, is part and parcel of the notion of a continuing corporate narrative that never ends, that you pass off your characters to another writer, another artist, and the story never ends. And occasionally you get some sort of sense of a wrap-up at the end of somebody's run or something like that, but there is this lack of finality, and I think that is an intrinsic problem in the continuing narrative structure. But I don't see the idea that DC is leading up to multiversity as anything remotely new. You had a year before crisis in which the Monitor was appearing in various titles. That was a year long leading up to a reboot of a universe. We were talking about Death Superman earlier. That clearly led into Zero Hour in the same way that certainly Civil War feels in any meaningful way connected to New Avengers. For me, the downside is that I like a lot of the 90s event comics in the sense that at that point in time, you hadn't had these kinds of stories being told before comics were still essentially in an episodic story structure mode in which the status quo, a kind of state of grace, was preserved within a given title. And that notion in the 90s of we're just going to radically break this was something very new and very different. And even if some of those comics sucked, others were good. And that was at least a kind of radical notion. And I think today that radical notion is worn off And we've seen the return of crossovers that had been sort of dormant for five years and came back in Infinite Crisis at DC and Civil War at Marvel. And we've had about one a year since then. 
it was sort of a thrill to have them back in the 2005-2006 period, but that luster very quickly wore off. And even though sales have been high, I don't think there's been all that much excitement for anything since then. Most of those crossovers since then have been seen as a letdown in terms of their stories, even though very uh, talented people have been involved. I mean, like, really, who cares about the death of Bucky Barnes in a crossover? That's an idea that was novel in the 90s, but isn't novel now. And if it's just, hey, big event crossover, who cares? So you're saying that in in a sense that, that at one time event comics had their place and now we've sort of lost some of the the specialness and the significance that came with event comics from the past. Yeah, I do. I think that obviously the crossover, the universe-wide crossover was originated in the 80s. It simply didn't exist before then. There were some limited storylines, but nothing on the scale of what was done in the mid-80s with Secret War at Marvel and Crisis at DC. And that is a structure that makes good corporate sense. It makes good commercial sense. But I think that there is what's termed event fatigue. I think that's very real. I don't begrudge the companies their commercial model. It obviously works for them. You do see a kind of limited boost in the connected titles, but that limited boost almost always goes away as soon as the event is over. It might last one extra issue at most, but even that has worn down. So the idea that this is even a vehicle to get people to try out those other titles and maybe find something that they like, I think has failed. If people do buy those issues, they're buying it to see what happens in the bigger storyline, and they have no vested interest in following those plots, unfortunately. So I do see it as something that has caused event fatigue, and I also see it as, more than that, as nothing new, that both the wider definition of the big crossover event comic and the looser definition of just killing off a character, replacing a character, new costume, whatever, the luster has worn off on those devices, and I think those are no longer substantial enough to drive meaningful interest. Well, and and what, what I find interesting about how event comics have changed is that they haven't really changed in terms of content so much as they've changed in terms of form and how they're packaged. Just look at the last three DC crossovers or the last three DC events. You had Final Crisis, which was relatively self-contained. Yeah, I mean, well, not not just relatively. It was self-contained. The only other comic that really kind of made reference to Final Crisis was the like one issue of Dwayne McDuffie's Justice League to, to sort of set it up. And then it had you know the three miniseries that were connected to it. And they were reasonably successful commercially, but it wasn't like you had an issue of Superman that had a Final Crisis tie-in or an issue of Batman or something like that. And, I mean, after the fact, I guess we had two issues of Batman that filled in the gap between R.I.P. and Final Crisis, but those were well after Final Crisis was over. Um, two at the time, too. There were, there were those two Batman issues that led into Final Crisis, but it was just two issues that occurred in the middle of Final oh. Crisis. You know what's interesting yeah, yeah. is if you look, I, I, I found a list of, like, Marvel crossover events from, like, the Golden Ages to now, and, mm-hmm. you know, it really starts getting heavy in the 1980s where you're getting, you know, Contest of Champions, which, 
you know, what what possible effect does that still have on the Marvel Universe right now? Or even yeah. Secret Wars and Secret Wars 2 that happened during that. I mean, in 1989, you had Atlantis Attacks. I remember reading that only because it was something kind of different that I was reading because I mainly read X-Men. But, mm-hmm. I, I mean, if you read that now, I mean, how much would it actually stand up? It probably wouldn't because it's right. just one of those filler things that they were trying to get out and involve everybody in and maybe boost sales for things like New Warriors or whatever. I guess the one thing I, I sort of have to, to counter that, though, is, I mean, there's a lot of stories now that if we go back and, and look at them today, just in, just in individual issues sense, is that what, what's the purpose and what's the effect today? Because if you read most of Kyle Rayner's run on in in Green Lantern, I mean, there were a few kind of major stories at that time, but they don't really have any effect today. I mean, and, and see, and I think that that is the important thing we should realize about comics is, is that even though there is a sense of nostalgia at times or, you know, that, that, that we thrive upon nostalgia, ultimately comics are always only concerned with the here and now. So they'll use nostalgia in order to, you know, sort of spur an idea or to get people interested in something. But ultimately, the, the nostalgia is only to, to serve the, the here and now or to, to continue the sales of things that are happening today. And so, it, I mean, you know, if you look back to, like, Kurt Busiek's Superman-run Camelot Falls, it was, it was a pretty intri- intriguing storyline the, in the beginning of it. It fell apart in the second half, but it's something that, you know, will never, ever be brought up again. The only thing I want to add to that is you say comics exist for the here and now. I think that's true for corporate superhero comics. That's not true for the medium in general. I mean, there are plenty no. of, of series that, that that doesn't apply to, but you're completely right. And that also tends to make you understand why we do get these events all the time, because there is a sort of short-run profit scenario, which certainly argues for that, and as long as people buy, it's really hard to fault the companies for doing that. But I think what Kevin's bringing up about lasting events, in writing Classics on Infinite Earth, I looked at DC crossovers, and one of the major things that makes a crossover feel good in retrospect is that sense of lasting change. And I think that there is the expectation that if you're going to not only buy this killer miniseries, but also several hundred dollars worth of tie-in, there is the expectation on the reader's part that some sort of fundamental change is going to happen to this universe or to its characters as a result. That may not be a fair expectation on the part of readers, but that has become an expectation for the crossover. Right. Well, yeah, and if you look at, you know, the numbers, in 2011 alone, we had eight different crossovers in Marvel, in just Marvel. And I've read a few of these. I just actually read Fear Itself. And the only distinct thing that's really changed after Fear Itself, other than Asgard, I think them being, you know, stuck on Earth, you know, the Asgardian gods being stuck on Earth, is that, the Asgardian fear god breaks Captain America's shield. Iron Man gets it put back together in Asgard, but it's got a crack down it now. And Captain America's like, no, it's cool. I'm going to keep it, you know, because right. it gives a character. And that I thought that was cool, 
but then when I think about it, oh, you know, this is seven issues. You, I, I would have just plunked down, you know, thirty bucks for a cracked shield. That's that's yeah. the lasting thing. And I guess that that then kind of disappoints me. I still think it's cool, and I still think it, you know, Matt Fraction deserves some credit for doing that, just on the coolness factor. But I, I don't know if it's, you know, if it was worth what we just read. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Well, and 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 I mean, also, I mean, Thor's death happened in it. But you're right, like that that yeah. that you know is not going to have any lasting effect because. First off, his main title is still going to be going. They're going to have the Avengers movie coming out, which means that they, they can't keep him gone for that. And we're going to have another Thor movie, and so they're going to want to keep the character, or they're going to bring the character back. And and, and really, it's it's one of those things, too, that, that like, I, I felt like Thor's death in Fear itself was handled rather poorly. Mm-hmm. Because it, it was just it just screamed of this is going to be get, get retconned really soon. Mm-hmm. I mean, in 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 the same sense, I suppose you know Batman's death felt sort of the same way in in Final Crisis, but it took a while. At least it at least took a while for for Batman to come back or for Bruce Wayne to come back. And so death is now like Christmas. It's like a holiday. It's like a comic book holiday every year. You know, it's like yeah. I feel like they'd start out with a list. Okay, here's 20 people we could kill off this year. Let's call yeah. it down to five. Yeah. And, it, you know, you're right. It loses its significance, um, especially in Fear Itself, which I agree it was handled, you know, poorly. As, as much as I disliked Fear Itself, and, I I mean, I'm admittedly, I, w- I will always openly admit that I'm more of a DC person than a Marvel person, I felt, and, and I normally will 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 defend most things that DC does. I really thought that Flashpoint was was a, a pretty big mistake, and I mean I can make an argument for it, and I have made an argument for it in my head a little bit, but it was a mistake in my mind because all the things that we've just talked about, where we would where you know they have to have significance and things like that. Yeah, Flashpoint technically rebooted the DC universe, but that's really the that was a foregone conclusion in the first place that it was going to happen. Right. And this was just the means to get to that. But like all of the minis that were a part of the Flashpoint universe, they lacked any sense of urgency or importance because these were all characters that we didn't know. They were alternate universe characters and I guess we you know, we knew some of the characters, but, like, we didn't care about, you didn't care about any of them, because if anything happened to them in the Flashpoint universe, it didn't matter, because in the mainstream DCU, they were going to be fine. Um, uh, I mean, you know, there's a big elephant in the corner, which is that Flashpoint was incompetently written from start to finish. Characters disappear, I mean, all of Europe is occupied, and, and that's going to become the main plot line, except it really isn't, it, it sort of fizzles out. You've got Barry Allen, you know, getting electrocuted again. The stuff with Barry Allen's parents and Batman's parents, especially at the end, I thought was emotionally resonant and good. But, you know, when a major event is defined by things like, oh, uh, Batman and Barry Allen are escaping from a sewer and they're surprised by characters we don't care about, who gives a shit? You're talking about about an event that ends in a double-page spread of 
moments from the DC universe that is incoherent to somebody who knows the DC universe forward and backwards, and it's still incoherent, and still has phrases like the combination of three universes. Well, Vertigo is in its own universe, except in DC editorial. Nobody has ever thought that. And, you know, there's some mysterious woman, and you're just supposed to say, none of it makes sense. That's okay, because I'm going to take on faith that DC is going to explain all of this within 12 months. Well, that's not a very satisfying narrative. I mean, can you imagine if a TV series did that? Well, they did. It was called Lost, and it was very successful. I was say that. <laughs> they, they made lots of money. I don't know if you saw that one. <laughs> well, you know, I would be okay with a lot of the crossovers probably if Marvel had never done Milligan's X-Force and Next Wave, which were comics that very much, you know, X-Force was obviously very smart, but both of them kind of pushed out there like, okay, we're not going to take this as seriously as everybody else is. And that's the problem, because then every crossover that comes out goes, well, we're changing the game. Here's the game changer. Mm -hmm. Well, if the game is changing that many times, if you're changing the game eight times a year in your universe, how the hell do you expect anybody to keep up? I mean, at that point, the rules are completely thrown out. Continuity is gone, because there's no way these characters are going through these many different types of ordeals and somehow withstanding. It's kind of irrational at that point. And, and I, I see what you're saying, Kevin, and I do, I do agree with you. I think part of it that we need to realize, too, is, is that I think the, the best way to, de- to describe this is to, to, to discuss something that's outside of DC and Marvel. If you think, if you think about, like, Invincible, I don't know um, who reads Invincible, but I do. You know, Invincible is one of those books that, for the longest time, you know, you can really kind of consider each Invincible storyline to be just these huge events. Like, I mean, Kirkman crafted it to be almost a, a comic event book in and of itself. Like, there's always this new and powerful and insane threat that Mark has to deal with, and it's building onto the next thing, and it's even more insane. It's almost like Dragon Ball Z at times, and it's just you know, threat after threat after threat. And I remember saying once after after the Viltrumite War ended, I, I remember saying to my comic guy, I was just like, man, I was like, it's just all the time. Like, I don't ever have, you, the comic never has a chance to breathe. Like, yeah. they never have a chance to just, you know, just relax a little bit and, and get to know the characters a little bit more. And then these past, the like, two or three issues, it's been it's been nothing but that. And then I've realized I miss all of the really big action stuff. <laughs> well, especially in Invincible, that was Kirkman's genius. Is he, you know, it really is crafting this comic as a metaphor for teenage years because that's how it felt growing up. You know, this mm-hmm. oh my god, there's you know this really dramatic event followed by this really dramatic event followed by this yeah. really dramatic event, and they all feel world changing. Because you don't have that stability yet, that light, that foundation there that you'll have when, you know, you're 30 or 40 or 50. Which is why it works for Invincible, but it doesn't work in, like, you know, fear itself. Because if you were Cap America and you had gone through everything he's gone through, you're not going to be standing there with a, a shitty rifle pointing it at seven guys that can 
destroy a universe. Yeah. Dude, what's the what is the point of firing a rifle at that guy other than being symbolic and being rather laughable at that? Yeah. Well, the other thing that we have to consider here is what sort of comics sell and what sort of comics do we want? And these are not yeah. necessarily the same answers. We do things that are not necessarily in our longer-term self-interest. And it seems to me that I think Invincible is a great example because that is a singular vision, and whether you like it or not, it has that sense of vision. It has a sense of direction. And I think that, you know, if we think about what kind of Superman stories do we want, do we want to read Superman where he's entangled in Flashpoint, or do we want to read, okay, let's, let's give uh, Mark Wade a, an ongoing Superman series, let it run 50 issues or whatever he wants, and let him do whatever he wants and not have to worry about continuity, put it in its own pocket universe like All-Star or whatever. I'd much rather read that than I would the monthly adventures of Superman where a creator is forced to, uh, say, depower Superman because that's part of a storyline. That is not something that I am personally interested in reading. And I think it devalues that creative vision. Now, on the other hand, I may well buy those comics because largely I've been sold on the promise of this is a really cool, exciting event. Get it on the ground floor. You want to see everything that happens. Everything's going to be different after this. And so I think we're sold on the sense of excitement the sense we're addicted to the sense of adrenaline and you know we buy those comics but i don't think that those comics are likely to last and likely to remain in print for you know 50 years uh, i really love uh, infinite crisis for example uh, i think maybe that will be in print but you know a lot of this stuff will not be and when a story or an artist's vision for that story is compromised for the sake of an event comic, which is just designed to get sales with Thor's death again, that cheapens what it is that you're doing. And I'm not saying that all comics have to be kind of like artur, artsy-fartsy comics. I'm just saying that I'd much rather read Straczynski's Earth One for all of its faults than I <laughs> would invest in, say, you know, George Perez's uh, Superman. What? I, I, I said I said George Perez's Superman because I. I personally think that the the current Superman run that's going on in DC New is just very very lacking. And I, I feel like it is a it's a little uh, it's it's almost exactly the way you described it, I think, in my mind. Yeah, and, and I was I was shocked by how nineteen eighties it felt. It was very compressed yeah. and it was filled with kind of events with very little explanation and, and very little characterization. But even if that were really great stuff, and I really like George Perez's stuff, even as a writer, I'll give the, the man his credit. But even if that stuff were really good, what is the point of investing in that if halfway through the narrative arc that he intends, his plot lines are going to be hijacked for the sake of a crossover that I may feel is crap and only existed to crack Captain America's shield or, or whatever it is? Well, I, well, I, I think know. that um, to to uh, I, I see I see your point, and I I think that sometimes though that those things can be 
can be handled well. Like, if you look to, like, Jeff Lemire's Superboy run, his Superboy run, in my mind, is one of just the preeminent, most perfect runs that we've had in a long time on on a comic, and it's it's a tragedy, in my mind, that it was cut short so that, you know, for the DC New and Scott Lobdell is now on Superboy and is just completely just destroying it and just making it just kind of going, it's a step backward for the character. But in Lemire's run, it started off, of course, you know, he's got the first, I think, three or four issues were in Smallville and things. And then they had to cross it over into Reign of Doomsday, which, of course, is just a, it was a horrible idea when it was first announced. Like, like you knew it was going to be a bad event. Mm-hmm. And, and still, you had the one issue that Lemire was sort of obligated to write that was tied into Reign of Doomsday. And, you know, it, it wasn't a great issue, but it was still, it was still a good issue. And then after that, Reign of Doomsday is still going on, and fortunately they just said, okay, forget it. You know, just your storyline is now after Reign of Doomsday. And so you have this little caption, it's like, these events take place after Reign of Doomsday. <laughs> like, well, well, we know Superboy lives after that, so. You know what's interesting is that you both are bringing up an interesting point, which is authorial intention when you're writing not only a company book, but then an event book. How much pure intention can these writers have when they're entering into these books? And it doesn't seem like a lot. It seems like they can, you know, they can come in and they can change the drapes, but they can't paint the walls. You know what I'm saying? Or they can paint the walls, but the walls are going to be repainted in 12 months anyway. Right. Right. What, What that leaves you with, though, is that the story is going to be told really through the lens of the company. And companies, you know, if Mitt Romney is right and they are people, they're people with really (laughs) shitty creative impulses because they really seem to only understand stories on two bases, one, which is love, and two, which is death. And I think that's why all these event comics really revolve around that, you know, like death of Johnny Storm or death of Thor or, you know, whoever. I think that there are people at, at even the big two who understand story and, and understand narrative. For example, Joe Quesada understood the importance of story. Mm-hmm. And when he did an event, that event mattered. Without micromanaging, I mean, I haven't heard the stories of, like, Bill Gemmis micromanaging with Quesada. But Quesada definitely took a hand in crafting stories and making sure that the story came first. And that was really a kind of golden age at Marvel from, like, 99 to maybe 2006. When you're talking about, like, something like Dan Slott's She-Hulk is a lesser book at your company, you're doing really well. That's pretty fantastic. But I, I wanted to bring up the fact that one of the problems with the, this corporate mentality and with these decisions to put the, the crossover first is that it's really short-term thinking that I'm all in favor of the crossover that's meaningful and will last and you'll want to read it in trade paperback in 30 years. But I'm not in favor of the crossover for the crossover's sake. And I think that there's a kind of short-term thinking there that says we're in the periodical business. If you want to increase periodical sales, the crossover is an excellent device. But if you look at something like 
Keith Giffen's Justice League. That's something that is referenced forever. It might be out of continuity now, but people are still interested in, in buying that. That can exist in hardcover collections and softcover collections and digital collections forever. But isn't that weakened by millennium suddenly occurs in the first volume, in the first year or so, which is otherwise a really coherent, pretty tight, albeit somewhat episodic story. You could print out those 12 issues as a great hardcover collection and sell them forever, but aren't you weakening those sales for the next 30 years by having these weird two millennium issues in it. Do you see what I'm saying? That there's there's a kind of short-term calculus involved in that. Yeah, that was a funny thing. They used to do it a lot in the 80s. Like, um, I recently went back and read Mutant Massacre. And, you know, I forgot that randomly there's two Thor issues in there and one Daredevil issue where he fights Sabretooth. And it, it just strikes me as so funny that if you collected those Daredevil issues, there would just be this random mutant massacre issue in there where he goes and fights Sabretooth and almost gets killed. And Sinetti, who wrote it, was trying to make this really, I think, to her profound point about, you know, what it was like to be an animal living in, you know, the city and stuff like that. But I, I just it seems like an odd punctuation mark in, in the chronology going there for Daredevil. I think that one of the important things that event comics do, or or at least their intended function, is to try and get breeders to jump onto a book that maybe their sales aren't doing so well. At least I wrote about this at, at first of a while back, whenever, whenever Booster Gold was announced to be a tie-in book to Flashpoint. As I said, I was like, it's pretty clear this book is on, a, is on the chopping block because they did the same thing with Blue Beetle in the Sinestro Corps War. It's like Blue Beetle was the only book to tie into Sinestro Corps War, which made no sense that Blue Beetle was was connected to it. But it was clear that, you know, it's like they're trying to boost the sales of this book, and they tried to boost the sales with Booster Gold, but it was still weird that they wanted to boost the sales of that whenever, whenever they were just going to relaunch the universe anyway. But Julian was saying about um, if a book can stay in print for for years or um, if it diminishes things, I go back and I I think about books like Identity Crisis. Like Identity Crisis was a pretty overarching crossover that went over lots of different titles. And I feel like a lot of those titles still can sort of benefit from that because that that was a story arc that that didn't really interrupt that was an event that didn't really inter, interrupt the flow of other comics because it wasn't in all fairness it wasn't like you know infinite crisis where there was this huge otherworldly threat that was going to demolish all worlds it was a much more character piece but right. then i think about like the event um if anybody remembers the emperor joker story arc yeah from mm-hmm forever ago. Like, I I look through my JSAs now, and there's that one issue <laughs> where Stargirl and uh, J.J. Thunder are running from, I think I think it was Solomon Grundy, who's on Joker Venom. <laughs> it's just like, what the hell is this? Like, where did this come from? <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, and I think that that's remembered as a, a really poor crossover. I, I'm not even sure that Identity Crisis 
qualifies as a company-wide crossover? Because there were really like only three or so titles that tied into it. Um, no, 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 all of them. Actually, I mean, I, I thought there was almost all of them had, had Identity no. Crisis tie-ins. Flash was a multi-part tie-in because Wally had found out that Barry had been involved in the brainwashing scheme. And those were really excellent issues that worked within what Johns is doing on the title. And then there's an issue of JSA, which is pretty well integrated. And then there are issues of Manhunter, where the main character is prosecuting, I, I forget who it is, it's Shadow Thief or someone who killed Firestorm. So there's like the legal fallout in there. But they're really, outside of Flash, they're really, and, and JSA, there really aren't issues that are like, oh, this is happening, we've got to tie into this. And those issues were really natural. And I think that you can do those crossover issues in a natural way that makes sense. I don't know how you do that with, with the Joker story, uh, Emperor Joker. Or actually, it was Joker Last Laugh is what you were thinking of. Emperor Joker was confined to the, the Superman title. But, okay, um, yeah. What's funny is I, I think that you really have to blame the X-Men family for, I think, the, the onslaught of crossovers. Um, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but I think as crossover events go, the X-Men were just fertile ground for that because they had a coherent, you know, united location, which was, you know, the, the expansion in Westchester. And it made sense to have those crossovers, and they could happen, and, and they could span every single book from, you know, New Mutants to, you know, when X-Force came along or X-Men and whatever incarnation. And that worked, but when you have Operation Galactic Storm, where there was, you know, the war between the Kree and the Shi'ar, man, nobody remembers that. Nobody references that. But people still remember, you know, the Infinity Gauntlet. But that was kind of like an identity crisis where it was kind of its own thing and only had a few tertiary books to, you know, dedicated to it. Well, one thing that you're ignoring is that in the X-Men in the 80s, that was really the rise of continuity, that what Claremont was doing was establishing a continuity, especially within the X-Men universe, that was a lot tighter than anything that was going on at the time. And that was a big part of the success of that franchise prior even to the universe-wide crossover. And that was carried over into DC as well as into those Marvel crossovers. How do you define that in terms of, like, story going on at that time? Do you think that there was, would you say there was more story during those Claremont years than maybe other years, Morrison aside? Well, there were more, there were more changes going on to characters. I mean, if you, if you read, like, the, the Claremont stuff from the early 80s, the characters are changing. There's a lot more references to the characters' past. Events happen that have significance, and it has that kind of soap opera quality. Most of the hero comics at the time were pretty episodic. You know, there might be a three-part Superman storyline, but at the end, Superman is exactly the same. He's not going to change. And the same thing was true with Batman at the time. Comics were still, you know, in a really episodic structure. And the success of Uncanny X-Men really changed that and really led to the notion that continuity sells and is something that people are interested in. But I return to the point, my point, which is I pay $4 an issue for Mark Wade doing the Fantastic Four and not having to worry about all this stuff. And if he wants to include the X-Men, 
he can choose, you know, like, okay, we'll put Fraction on that book, and we have the little Mark Wade pocket universe. I'd much rather read that than I would Mark Wade doing Captain America or Fantastic Four in the Marvel Universe and have to worry about, oh, well, I was going to feature Namor, but I forgot he's been turned into a dragon for the last two years in an event, and so I can't tell the story that I wanted to tell. Well, and I, I think that one thing we need to realize is, is that some writers are afforded more leeway than others. It's pretty clear that Grant can pretty well write whatever he wants, and they're going to they're gonna let him do it. Or Jeff Johns has a lot of leeway where he can kind of write whatever he wants. But then you have other writers like, you know, Dwayne McDuffie's infamous Justice League run now that was just mired with editorial mandates where they're just... You know, he he could yeah. not get anything done that he wanted done, and 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 I I don't mean to suggest anything in, in terms of you know some sort of conspiracy or anything like that, but it's just it's just interesting to to think about who who gets marching orders and who they allow to just lead the entire universe. Like I mean, at, at Marvel, of course, they're they're now touting that I mean, of course, Bendis is going to be their one of their head architects, but. You know, they've now included, you know, Fraction is a part of that, and Brubaker has been a part of it for a while. But now they're including, like, Jason Aaron as a part of their, their sort of architectural team to for the next huge event, which apparently has to do with the Phoenix or something. You know, and what, what I think is funny is that all four of those Marvel writers you named are writers who I have great respect for. We might rank them slightly differently, but I like all of their work. I follow all of their work, more or less but I can't help but think their talents are largely wasted on some of these events and on governing this unwieldy continuity. And I'm a big fan of continuity. I love the notion of a shared universe. I love the the craziness of the superhero orgy that is the crossover. I love all of that stuff. But I feel as if these universes have really run their course. You know, when Thor has died twice, it's really not an event anymore. I'm yeah. much more interested in, for all of their faults, All-Star, Ultimate, Earth-1, these sorts of projects that can be allowed some existence independent of corporate interference and just this long, unwieldy run of continuities to see in Batman and Robin, the relaunched DC universe, Batman standing next to Dick Grayson, who's an adult, and to know Jason Todd is also still out there, and also Tim Drake and Damien, and understand that supposedly this is a five-year continuity, is to simply understand in a single image that this sort of continued superhero continuity with 30 different writers working simultaneously has run its course and is no longer a viable narrative model. Yeah, of course, who knows how long this will last, but... DC has basically said that, that the idea of a bit major event, they're putting it on the back burner for a while now. Of course, you know, they, they've already begun setting things up because they've had the Hooded Woman. The Hooded Woman was in every first issue, and it's supposed to get people talking. But I see what you're saying, Julian, and I do, I, I do agree because I, I, I think it's interesting. I, I do like the idea of, of just sort of self-contained universes that sort of crossover every once in a while, but uh, I, I tend to think of, since, since of course, the comparison for comics and mythology is nothing new, but if we think about, 
you go back to like Greek mythology and then you think about, well, you know, when did this story happen in comparison to this other story or something? They just all sort of exist at the same time. It's a like it's best not to think about it, you know, and just like move on with with our yeah, lives. You know, I just Greek, but, the continuity of Greek mythology is indeed a mess. But what is different there is that Greek mythology was not continuing. And I love the parallel that you're drawing because I, you know, I, I've done this work with Greek mythology of trying to chart it out and being super anal about it. But Greek mythology, those myths were not written in chronological order. And so somebody would come up with a great story and it would take and it would codify into mythology. And that is similar to what's going on at these two companies. But the next guy who comes along can tell a story of Theseus' early years, if he wants. And I think that's very different from DC and Marvel, where, like, imagine if all titles are running on the JLA classified model, for example, where, you know, you can just tell a story at any given point, and the ones that survive, survive. Even that, I think, would be a, a better idea than 50 titles interacting with each other, all written by different people. That is an unwieldy model to me. Well, I think that, to go back to something you and Cody both said, Cody was talking about how um, at event comics, you know, we're dealing with mainly the here and now. And Julian said something about, you know, basically the big two are in the publication business, as they believe. The problem with that is that not only is is it short term, like Julian pointed out, it's also reactionary. And really what happens then is that you basically have made a perishable product because all you're worried about is what it does right now. Does your engine run right now? It doesn't matter if your car will run in a year. What matters is, is it running right this second? And that's really what they care about, which then we get back to, well, really what's happening is is that there's a corporate narrative being crafted here. And I think that's a really important point that we really need to touch on more because there's so many implications that spin out of that. Are these writers being wasted on crafting, you know, big corporate events when they could be doing something somewhere else with more freedom and possibly be producing something excellent? I would call it authorial integrity rather than intent Mm -hmm. because I think that implies something else about literary criticism. But you know what universe I really love? Alan Moore's America's Best Comics. That's a fantastic universe of incredible quality. And I love the stuff that other people did on it later. You look at Alan Moore's awesome universe, and Supreme is interacting with Youngblood. You can do that and have that be meaningful, and you can have other writers be involved and have a corporate continuity, essentially. But limit it to a few titles and manage it carefully and focus on quality so that if there are a few weird stories in there, they're a few weird stories rather than gee, I don't even know now if this story is in continuity or what's going on or, or why, well, like you said, you know, Sabretooth appears in this issue. But, I mean, in, in all fairness, though, is that, you know, of course, like you said, DC as as a universe exists with, you know, 50 different writers and tons of different artists and all of, the, all of those working together. And then the Alan Moore ABC line, really none of those, none of those books really interacted with one another. Until the end. Until the the crossover at the end. Did they have a crossover at the end of ABC? 
Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's it's run out of the end of Promethea, which is like the end of the oh. universe, and it's in Alan Moore's final issue of Tom Strong, in which like all yeah, I read the Tom, I read Tom Strong. Yeah. Yes, I mean there is. So you're right that I mean that avoided those crossovers for a long time as a part mm-hmm. of universe building, but I mean I would love to see more of that stuff. I mean I'd love to see oh, a pocket resurrected Wildstorm universe in which DC said, okay, we're going to take the best stuff, you know, we're going to take all of Planetary, we're going to take all of Warren Ellis' stuff and Mark Miller's stuff after that, we're going to take Wildcat 3.0, we're going to take that awesome stuff, shift it over into, you know, its own pocket Wildstorm universe, hire Warren Ellis to do the, the prequel to Warren Ellis' Stormwatch stuff, 12-issue miniseries. Now you've got a Warren Ellis continuity that extends to, you know, the end of Mark Miller's run. You've got Planetary alongside that. Go back and do the issue where the authority is reacting to the final issue of Planetary. Figure out how to implement that into, you know, Wildcat 3.0. It's a similar theme. You could do that and create this pocket universe of just impeccable, awesome quality. Uh, And I'd be much more interested in that than I would seeing those same creators waste their time on Thor or whatever. Right. Yeah. They almost had that with New Universal with Ellis. Uh, I mean, you, I think they were really kind of trying to craft something like that, but it just didn't. That fell apart because of the uh, because of the his computer crash and stuff like that. But, right. And, and well, well, wasn't Stradinsky doing something similar with, what was it, Supreme Power? Or was, yeah. that, was that supposed to be limited? No, it was. Yeah, I mean, he was he was supposed to do like an ongoing thing with that, but it fell apart because it was a Max title, and they wanted to move away from Max titles, and so they brought it into the Marvel Knights imprint, and then it got really behind and late, probably because of Straczynski and also Gary Frank moved to to DC, and it was just it became a huge mess at that point. And see, and see, a lot of this problem too is is that we can't really just blame the the companies and stuff like that because oftentimes. Writers sometimes leave so that they can go somewhere else, and it's sort of the nature of the beast, I suppose, in some ways. Mm-hmm. And and going back to the idea of, of comics have like they're concerned with the here and now, and they're concerned with you know the present. There really is no other way to do it because there there is no end game. I mean, there's no there's no such thing as an end game for comics because they're going to continue to be made until sales aren't enough that they're going to get canceled. And so the really event comics act as a sort of end game for them so that they can get to an event sometimes. Other times, you know, the event moves into acts as, as you know, an ancillary event to move to another event, I suppose. But there is no such thing as an end game because because this universe is never going to end. It can't end. You know, they're going to keep making money on it, you know. Mm. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that. I'm just trying to suggest that there are models for how to run a corporate universe well. Obviously, you know, I don't think any of us would really defend uh, Ultimatum uh, creative-wise. Although, you know, I I would defend some of the ideas behind it as far as sort of shifting the the ultimate Marvel universe out of copying the the typical Marvel universe. But for all of its fault, I mean, let's say that Ultimate Marvel is a similar corporate narrative, which it is. There's no end game in sight. But it's much more carefully managed. 
and there's far less continuity. And there are some continuity errors. I mean, Nick Fury gets his arm ripped off, and it suddenly reappears. I mean, there's stuff like that. But you can go back and you can have somebody do the untold issue of Nick Fury getting a cybernetic arm if you care to, and I think they should. But my point is that for all of the bad runs along the way in the Ultimate Universe, there's an awful lot of quality there, an awful high percentage there. And I really respect that, whereas, you know, if I look at the wider DC or Marvel Universe of 50 titles each, there is a decent amount of quality, but it's a far lower percentage that I ever want to read again. And I can wade through the, the weaker stuff if I know that that quality of percentage is high enough that I'm going to get to something that's really awesome. Again, like we, we, have, we have to think about two things whenever we're thinking about, about comparing the Ultimate Universe to you know, DC and Marvel. Number one, I mean, like like you said, there, there's not as many there's not as many books, and so basically the law of averages is just showing us that the more books that they have, then the more chances they have at 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 just royally screwing up. And so, I, I don't know that those can be kind of comparable just based upon just just percentages and things. But on on top of that, is that the reason why the Ultimate Universe can be so successful? is that they can do anything to those characters. They can do anything they want to Marvel's characters and just royally screw them up any way they wish because they exist in a different universe, and in terms of corporate branding, then they don't risk or they don't compromise those brands anymore. So you can have a Hispanic and black Spider-Man and... And it's so funny because, like, my, I, you know, I, I have relatives that were angry about that for some reason. I don't know why. But they're like, oh, we're getting rid of Spider-Man and the Spider-Man we all know and love. And then my immediate reaction was, no, we're not. Like, the normal Peter Parker Spider-Man is still around. It just so happens that Miles Morales is a part of a different Spider-Man universe. And then suddenly, like, it just sort of clicks and they go, oh, okay, yeah, I guess you're right, you know. And, and... So, Although even that is still racist, I mean. Yeah. Oh no, yeah. no. I mean, don't get yeah, me wrong. It's like, <laughs> oh well, don't, well, you, we still got, we still got the white uh, Spider-Man. Don't, don't worry about it. You know, he's yeah. still around. No. It, we just gave the blacks this little side universe. Okay, wink, wink. Right. No, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I recognize that. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I know. And you I do. don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't mean it. And, and I only mean that in, in the sense that, that. Peter Parker has been Spider-Man since, you know, since the 60s. And so here's this legacy character that they're never, like, even though they screw him up with clones every once in a while and the really weird marriage problems and one more day and brand new day and all of that stuff, like, ultimately, like, he's always going to be Spider-Man. He just is. And so I think the Ultimate Universe is there, and they can experiment, and they can change all of this stuff, and they can kill him off and get rid of him forever, because in the end, he's still going to be Spider-Man. You know, and DC doesn't have that equivalent. And they, I mean, I guess they do because they have Earth-1, but they don't have that ongoing periodical equivalent. And so they can't really experiment with the formula as much. And so I think that, you know, I still think they should be commended for for the new 52 for being as bold as they were with uh, with the things that they decided to do. Oh, I, I agree. I think that, you know, I admire the experiment, 
you know, in the same way that I said I admire the ideas behind Ultimatum, I don't have to like the execution. But I think that what you're pointing out is very deep about how the Ultimate Universe derives some of its strength from not having to be the main universe. But I, but I would still say I don't need 50-some titles in that main universe. I, I would be much happier with, I, I know this is, is not necessarily commercially viable, 12 titles that could be 64 pages a month and contain the equivalent of, of three issues each. And, and I have 12 titles to buy going back to, you know, a more sort of anthology format where, you know, you maybe have Batman and Detective Comics and they've got backup stories with, with Batwoman and, and whatever. I'd be a lot happier with that than I would just the kind of sprawling, out-of-control 60 titles. I mean, how many, it's been a joke for two decades, how many titles is Wolverine in this month? How does oh he God. get around, you know? Yeah. Well, and, 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 well, okay, and wait. look at it this way. Let's see. Okay, let's look at Fear Itself, for instance, okay? Fear Itself had altogether 118 issues, okay? Now, let's, let's examine that, for instance. Let's say, let's say on average the books are three bucks a pop. That's $354 you just asked me to plop down for a story, okay? That's a car payment. That's a lot of money, especially in this day and age. Now, if you need 118 issues to tell this story, that to me says this story is monumental, it is epic, possibly life-changing if you need 118 issues to tell it. Yeah. But at the end of 118 issues, I get further threats, some gods being kicked out of their home, and a cracked shield. Well, why didn't I just wait for the graphic novel to come out, which I might have to buy five at twenty bucks a pop, and then I only spend a hundred bucks, and I'm not out two hundred fifty-four extra dollars. Yeah, which might just go to blowing hookers, but still, I mean, it would be going to something else. Yeah, and I'd feel like I get more bang for my dollar that way, pun intended. Yeah, but again, you're talking you're talking about that sense of event fatigue and disappointing readers which I think is very fair. And, and I think that people feel that, you know, why do you need this many issues? And it should be pointed out that both Marvel and DC have, have always said that you don't need to read every single tie-in to understand the story. And they're right. very careful about that. So in fairness... Yeah, but fear, you know, I'm sorry, but in, in nor- normally, like, with Flashpoint, that's pretty well true. Like, you could have read the main series mm-hmm. and... Like, I mean, there wasn't much story there anyway, but you could have read the main series and not read any of the other stuff. But with Fear itself, I only read the main series, and I was just, like, it was just a mess. Like, at times I was Mm -hmm. like, well, where is he going? And, like, and then the last page, they would always say, oh, do you want to see the Hulk fight Dracula? Go to this comic. I'm like, well, hell no, I don't want to see Hulk fight Dracula, but I want to see Hulk do something, you know, like... Like, this is bull, you know? Yeah. For me, that always comes back to, like, the difference between Millennium versus Invasion. And, you know, I don't know if you remember Millennium, but Millennium was exactly that way. Like, every, it was a weekly, and every issue ended with, like, oh, Guy Gardner's flying off with somebody, and he says, like, I'm going to kill this guy, you'll never see him again. And it's like, to see what happens, read Green Lantern Corps. Next issue, you know, they're all right back. Nothing has happened. You know, it, it's totally incoherent as a story. I think much more than fear itself. 
you know, and then you have something like Invasion where you can read the main story. You don't have to read any tie-ins, but if you read those tie-ins, you kind of see, like, how this alien invasion affected, like, all these little corners of the universe in this really cool way. And I think these are two, you know, diametrically opposed models for how to do this crossover. But, I mean, the problem to me is that, like, especially with, like, Fear itself, you know, Cody's right. Like, let's say Spider-Man goes off, and you'll get, like, a panel or two about what he went off to go do, maybe. But in order to really get that story, you have to go and buy this, this, and this, and, you know, you know, Spider-Man walks down a road, you know, Fear Itself special. I mean, for instance, in Fear Itself, there was, what, a um, Thor versus Dracula three-issue miniseries that had no relevance to the overall story other than, hey, don't you want to see these two fight? Yeah, well, sure, if it's cool, but I'd really like it to have some sort of importance other than you got me to give you, you know, three fifty or four bucks. Well, and I think I think one thing that that both DC and Marvel should sort of be commended for in a way is here lately, whenever they've transformed how they've transformed event comics like Flashpoint or really more more comparable would be like Blackest Night is that, you know, Blackest Night tied in, brought in as many characters as they could, but she didn't have to go and buy their individual titles, and it did not interrupt individual titles to, to tell the story. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's sort of one difference between event comics lately compared to event comics in the past. So, like, you know, Fear Itself, even though I, I'm not a fan, at least it was within the main title and then all of the minis that they created. But I guess that's sort of tricking people to go in and buying more and more comics then because then it's not tied into the title that they were going to buy anyway. But at least it doesn't interrupt comics, you know. That's a good model, but I I hate the the miniseries tie-in model. I, I think it worked for Civil War with, like, Civil War Frontline, where that was focused on Ben Urich, and there wasn't an ongoing series, and I really dug that. But I, I, I recognize the, the good in what you're saying because it avoids interrupting the storyline, and that's definitely a plus. But that, that Superman or that, you know, Hulk time series or whatever occurs at some point in the continuity of the main title. It's still there. It's just like the main title stops, and suddenly there's this weird tie-in storyline by different people in most cases, and then you resume with the previously announced story. You know, yeah. you know what I'm saying? I mean, it well, can well, be and, years after that. It, it, can be handled, it can be handled well, though. I mean, if you look at, like, Final Crisis, like, Final Crisis had three, three miniseries tie-ins, you know, um, Revelations, Legion of Three Worlds, and Rogue's mm-hmm. Revenge, and really, all three of those were handled really well. Like, it, because yeah. mostly because the main series was wasn't focused on those things. It wasn't like oh, go and find out what happens to the question, you know, or something like that. Like it, it just they were all self-contained and just so happened to take place at the same time. And that's the way Blackest Night was, and and why I think that it was a more successful event because if you wanted to find out what Superman was doing during Blackest Night, then you could read the Superman Blackest Night tie-in, but you know, the main title didn't really reference it. 
it didn't it wasn't a, an absolutely essential part of the story but it was really good and it was worth checking out you know well i mean i guess it wasn't really oh. good but like wonder woman was really good and batman was really good but you know i mean I, I think that those things can be done well but but the fear itself model or or the millennium model i suppose really really don't work yeah and there are crossovers out there that have happened even this year that nobody talks about and i think they're completely forgotten like I think it was either this year or last year, Marvel did, um, what was it, The Chaos War. I think Dan Slott wrote that. And it was completely self-contained. I think it was four issues, and it was kind of, you know, the cosmic Marvel than, you know, the Earth 616 Marvel. But um, then uh, Joe Casey, I think, is doing Vengeance right now, which is going on, that was a kind of a, cro- a crossover event comic thing that he really wanted to do for a long time that they're letting him do, but once again, no one's talking about that, and maybe it is because these are just self-contained stories. I, mm-hmm. I did try to read Chaos War, and I can't say it wasn't that great, but it's still interesting that they were trying to do something self-contained and still making an event. Yeah. My final thought is that although I would prefer to see Mark Wade running a pocket universe or whatever, the crossover or event comics is still a useful model, but that all the things we're talking about point to the notion that you've got to have quality. And whatever model you choose, whether it's miniseries tie-ins or tying into the main titles, you have to give the readers quality because if you don't, if they're looking at that 118 issues and they think, gee, a lot of these suck, and what was the point of this? You've alienated your readers. You're going to have in the long term less sales of that material. And the readers are going to feel ripped off and taken advantage of as opposed to being given a really cool, crazy superhero orgy event. If it's not done well and if people feel like this is a tie-in for the sake of a tie-in or you're trying to sell me stuff as opposed to give me a cool quality story, those readers will feel alienated and the crossover will be seen as a failure. And you might score these short-term points, but you're really hurting yourself as a company in the long run. And, you know, to me, when we start talking about quality, one comic I think of instantly is Cerebus. Um, Because to me, the the quality was always, at least after the first, you know, Conan spoof art, was really just, I I mean, amazingly elegant work. Um, Not just the writing, but definitely, you know, the background and the art that Gerard produced. That you can carry through 300 issues, and you'll still carry an audience. But you have to, I think, allow your creators to have a certain, you know, um, like use with integrity, Julian, that artistically allows them to not be so fettered just because of a corporate agenda. And that's why I brought up Cerebus, because, like I said, you know, those two people carried that through 300 issues, 30-something years. That's a long time. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sitting here complaining about 118 issues, which I would not care about if they were 118, at least mildly excellent issues. That would be okay. But if you're not telling a cohesive story throughout that entire thing, then... You're, you're going to lose people. You're going to piss people off. 
Yeah, and, and even in corporate superhero comics, you look at, like, Miller's Daredevil run. Unfortunately, that was before the big crossover era. Can you imagine if you had Miller working on Daredevil today or the equivalent, and it was just as revolutionary? It was just as, like, holy shit, what am I reading? The superhero is different after reading this stuff. This is some amazingly good shit. Can you imagine if that were interrupted by crossovers that, that changed the character or just interrupted the, the narrative flow? Why would anyone risk hurting that? And isn't the fact that we haven't produced as many uh, Frank Miller Daredevil runs since, you know, the return of the crossover in 2005, 2006, the rise, take two of event comics, the first time being in the 90s, isn't the fact that we haven't seen as many just definitive, amazing runs, at least partially because of this shared continuity that demands a huge event every four months. And uh, I'll add my final thought, kind of jumping off of that, is that um, I would argue that also that event comics can be used as a springboard if done well enough or can be used to enhance a a narrative or enhance a character. I mean, if we look at and I know that you're going to disagree with me before I even say it, but I'll say it anyway. I mean, if we look at at the Jeff Johns Green Lantern run, you know, I mean, it started with Rebirth, which Rebirth wasn't necessarily, it wasn't really an event because it didn't cross over into anything, but it was a really, it was a really large storyline. And then some issues of Green Lantern pass, and then eventually we get to Sinestro Corps War, which, again, not really like an event in the traditional sense because um, it didn't cross over into, into tons and tons of books. But then we get to, like, Blackest Night, and we have this really just this upward trajectory for a character that was so successful that it launched a very horrible movie. <laughs> but But, like... You know, the Jeff Johns run redefined Green Lantern to the point where he was he was elevated to the status of Superman and Batman and was shown as being commercially viable so that there's a video there are video games and there's a cartoon coming out that's gonna be just a Green Lantern cartoon, which um is just as much as I don't like it because it's all computer animated, it's amazing to me that we can that we can have a Green Lantern cartoon. And all of that is because because of Jeff Johns and playing within the rules of of modern comics and event comics and things like that. Yeah, I, I think that's a good model for how it can be done. I mean, even if I disagree with some of Johns' choices on that title, I think you're <laughs> right that I think that both Rebirth and uh, Sinestro Core War could be seen as events. I like a lot of that stuff. I, I thought Blackest Night was beautiful. I, you know, I didn't like the story. Right? I think the ending is atrocious and silly beyond belief. But I think it, as far as a model for how to run a crossover successfully, uh, it's a pretty good model. And, and John's run on Green Lantern can be seen as a coherent whole despite its participation in these crossovers. I think, I think uh, the only way we can really end this um, I think the proper way to end this would be to just do a quick one line of of what we think the absolute best 
crossover is, at least in our own minds, and what we think was one of the worst crossovers of all time. I'll tell you what I think is the best crossover in superhero history. And you you know I'm a DC fan, and I have mm-hmm. all the DC crossovers in my head in, in some bizarre four-dimensional space. But I think the best crossover ever done is Civil War. It is kind of Hollywood with its surprise ending at the end of every issue. But the art is good. There's no fill-in art. The story is awesome. It changes things for the better. It's a logical flowering of storylines and tensions within the Marvel Universe going back to the 60s. And it is a coherent whole that can be read on its own. You can put that in a trade paperback and and sell it forever. It still makes sense. You don't need to know all of the past continuity to, to understand, yes, this would happen in a superhero universe. And I think it's incredibly high quality. And to my mind, that's probably the best superhero crossover ever done. Mm. And worse? And worse? I, I don't know. Uh, Bloodlines. <laughs> I, I love the long pause and then bloodlines, and I don't think we need to say anything else. I think I, I, I'll agree with that. I'll say bloodlines. <laughs> Kevin, what about you? What do you think is the, the best crossover of all time? You know, I, I, I do agree with Julian that Civil War is, but since he said it, I'll, I'll name a different one, and I'll say Extinction Agenda. Because I, I just I really love that story and I, I I still love it to a certain degree. I don't know if it really holds up, but there was a lot of like political maneuvering and you know toppling of states and you know I I don't know I really loved that as a kid. Um, worst, I'm gonna have to say Executioner song, which is also an X Men crossover as well. That one was just yeah a hot mess. Um, I have to go with with. My best is probably Infinite Crisis. And and really a lot of it has to do with the build-up towards it, with the four miniseries of, you know, Day of Vengeance and OMAC and, and Villains United and uh, Rams Anagar War. I thought, I thought all four of those were pretty cool stories, and I thought that Infinite Crisis itself was just really, really, really well-crafted. And I think the the worst I do, I do I do I actually have both I like both of your your suggestions Bloodlines and Executioner's uh, song. Uh, song, but man, um, if I had to pick one that I thought was just just terrible, uh, why why you take a minute? I just want to say I agree completely about it, Infinite Crisis. I, I think that yeah. The continuity kind of starts to fall apart toward the end, but man, that build-up is awesome. And if mm-hmm. you see this, if you see the crossover as like the ultimate superhero orgy with tons of events going on and everyone's involved across the universe, it's hard to get better than that. Uh, actually, okay, I've, I've got mine. I think I really think that that I don't remember the name of it off of the top of my head. It was the DC crossover. It was written by Morrison. It was four issues. It was the 853rd century uh, robot DC power 1 million. Man. Ah, man, DC 1 million was tough. Why? I thought it was tough. 
I think that's one of the best. I would put that in my oh. in my top five or six. Oh man, like it's. I, I think part of my problem is is that it feels it's it feels a little dated today. Also, I I can't get past the artwork, and I know that that's such a I know that I I that's such a lame thing to to get hung up on. I've heard how it ended, and I I think that like I really like what I've heard of, of it, but every time I sit down to try and read it, I'm just like, I can't get past, I can't even remember who does the art. He, he does... The Val Semmings, or I'm not sure how... Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I just, I can't, I can't get past it. I'm sorry. I know. I'm a bad person. <laughs> well, you, you put Morrison as your worst uh, crossover. I mean, lower than uh, Final Crisis, presumably. <laughs> oh, see, I love, I love Final Crisis, though. I think Final Crisis is amazing. So, I, I I I think that I think that it I think if I could talk to Grant, I think he would appreciate that um, I consider him my alpha and omega in that sense. That he he wrote one of my favorite crossovers and also one of my least favorites. <laughs> All right, well, this has been um, Sackworth Podcast. Thanks to uh, both Julian and Kevin. Thank you all for listening, and we hope that you will uh, come back and listen to us more often. And make sure that you comment in the comment section. Let us know what your favorite crossover was, what your least favorite crossover was, and also just let us know, you know, how wrong we are, because I'm sure that that we've all said something that's just absolutely (laughs) wrong. So thank you all for stopping by, and have a great day. SecWart Research and Literacy Organization exists to promote comics as a legitimate form of art. It offers daily content on its website, SecWart.org. It publishes nonfiction books that analyze comics and take comics seriously. It even produces documentary films about comics. Find out more at SecWart.org. And if you'd like to help SecWart through Amazon purchases at absolutely no additional cost to you, please visit sequart.org slash Amazon. I wanted to say Flashpoint was my least favorite because <laughs> it really was an abortion, but I don't I don't want my I know my wife would get pissed if I did, so <laughs> anyway. Sequart exists to take over the world. I hope no one records this. <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs>